Um, If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians. If you'd like to follow along with us this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have one, we are on page 977 in the uh, Bible that's in the rack under the chair there. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. As we've been working through the book of Ephesians, we've been focusing on this theme of new identity that we're tempted as people to take our identity from whatever our immediate circumstances are, whatever shame we may be feeling, uh, maybe even positively from the accomplishments that we've pulled off and thinking, hey, this is who I am. But the scripture challenges us to see ourselves through the lens of what God has done for us. So instead of seeing ourselves as this is who I am or this is who, uh, what I've done, seeing ourselves through this is what God has accomplished for me, his adopting gracious love for me. And so as we Uh, live out that new identity, then that transforms us and transforms the world around us. We start to actually become the kind of people we want to be. The focus in verses 11 through 22 this morning is on the new humanity, that there there are two races of men, two races of humanity, that there is one race in Adam, is what Romans tells us, and there's another race in Christ. There's really only two people groups that we can belong to, Um, and so we shouldn't take our identity from our from our flesh. We shouldn't take it from our tribe, from our neighborhood, from how we were brought up, from what city we were born in, but our identity comes from Christ and his gracious work on our behalf. So if you'll read with me, we'll, we'll read verses 11 through 22. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, the word Gentiles is just a translation of nations that means the other nations, the non-Jews, right? So God is working through his covenant people, Israel, and they would just consider everybody else the nations. Almost a throwaway term, right? Kind of like saying the bad people, right? Or the heathens or the pagans. And so Paul's reminding them, hey, you, you used to be those outsiders. Saying, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would teach us what it means to be a part of the new humanity. I pray that we would take our hope in you and what you've accomplished, that we would see ourselves through the lens of of how you see us instead of through our own accomplishments or through our own failures. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last three years, I've been praying for a a fellow pastor. I'm in a a church planting network, and we interact online 
uh, to try to kind of encourage each other and help each other plant new churches and pray for each other. Uh, And this one pastor was asking specifically for prayer over an adoption that was taking place in his family. Uh, He said three years ago, his wife and he had come to the point through prayer and just through personal growth, they felt God calling them to adopt. Uh, And as they were sharing this with his parents, uh, his, his parents just freaked out. And it was totally unexpected for him because he, he told his parents that they decided they were going to adopt and whatever race the Lord brought them, that'd be great. You know, it's very likely that it wouldn't be a white child. My friend was white uh, and his, his parents didn't like that at all. And it really shocked him. He, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He'd previously seen his parents as believers. He'd previously seen his parents as Christians in the biblical sense of what we've been talking about already that you see yourself as part of the family of God through adoption through Christ. You don't see yourself primarily through your race, but you see yourself primarily through what Christ has done for you. But his parents didn't see it that way. Uh, And his dad actually went so far as to say, I want you to know that I hold you completely responsible for destroying our family. And the last three years, he hasn't been seeing his dad. His dad and mom won't see their new biracial child, um, and it's just been an incredible heartache, and many of us have been praying for him and with him through this, uh, through this difficulty. Um, probably a shock to a lot of us. Uh, I think our culture is at a place where hopefully we've learned a lot of those hard lessons as a culture, and especially as Christians, we understand that race is secondary to what God has accomplished for us and through us in Christ. Um, but I think we still struggle with it in other ways. You know, we still struggle, maybe not because of our race, but we still struggle to think, well, there's something wrong with me because of my failures. Or there's something very right with me that makes me better than other people because of my accomplishments. And, and all of those things are torn down at the cross. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your accomplishments. It doesn't matter the stupid things you've done. We're, we're adopted by faith in Christ. We're in his family because of what he's accomplished, not because of what we've accomplished or where we were born or who uh, we are in the flesh. And so the first thing that I want us to zero in on as we think about this new humanity that we have in Christ is that we're told to remember the old humanity that we had in the flesh. We're told to look back and think about where we were before Christ. Where were we apart from Christ. Now, this is a hard exercise for some people that, you know, were born in the church, basically. Um, but he says that all people, even those who are religious, have a, have a humanity apart from the Spirit, a humanity in the flesh. Let's look at verse 11 and, and 12 here. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he says, remember the shame. Remember the separation. Remember the alienation. That one time you were outside of the family of God. At one time you did not know what it was to be adopted into the people of God. But what's interesting is he also tells them to remember the specific shame that they had and the name-calling that the, that the Israelite people would, would give to them. He says in verse 11, at one time you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That Circumcision and uncircumcision, uh, sorry parents, if you have kids here, you may have to explain this to them later because I'm just going to give broad generalities here. 
But it was a purification rite that marked the flesh of the males of the Israelite people, right? So it was a cutting away of excess skin on the male body part. And that was a symbolic purification, right? Didn't actually purify, but it symbolically purified them. It marked their flesh to say, this is a set-aside, holy, special people. And so that, that exercise is called circumcision. That extra skin that the Jews saw as disgusting because it was cut away in this process is called the foreskin. And in the Greek, and again, I'm sorry, but this is in the text. In the Greek, that's what they're called. So, so our English translation kind of cleans it up a little bit. It says, you were called the uncircumcision. It kind of abstractifies it. No, in the Greek it says, you were called the foreskins. And that that's, that's what you were called, this kind of gross, physical, body part thing, right? And so you were called this derogatory term. Some of you may have been called, maybe probably not that, but some of you have probably been called derogatory terms, right? Maybe because of your race or your neighborhood, right? Or how you were brought up. You may have been called some kind of name, and you can, you can recall that shame that Paul is telling them. Recall that shame. What Paul does, though, is is interesting. He turns it. So on the one hand, he wants us to remember the shame, but he also wants those of us who are religious, those of us who may not think of ourselves as the shameful outsiders, to also recognize that we're a part of that outsider group. So whether you think you're an insider or an outsider, Paul says in the flesh, you're all outsiders. Because look at the little kind of aside phrase he makes. He says, you're called that name by the circumcision. He says, which is made in the flesh by the hands. Made in the flesh by the hands. This is a, this is a term that occurs again and again in the Bible. This both, he's kind of put together two terms here. Done by hands and made in the flesh are two terms to talk about a, a contrast between something that's done on the outside and something that's done in the heart. So again and again, Isaiah 2.8 is a great example of this. And in Isaiah 2.8, it says, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. That phrase is used many times to talk about how we as human beings worship created things instead of worshiping the Creator. So we form things with our hands. We do stuff. We, we make external boundary markers. We do things to our bodies. We mark ourselves. We go through rituals and we say, this makes me clean. And God says, no, it's the heart is really the problem. doesn't matter what you've done with your hands. doesn't matter who you are in the flesh. You need to be redeemed. You need a new heart. And this is played out with specifically with circumcision. Circumcision is talked about again and again as something that needs to happen in your heart. It's not just something that needs to happen to your body. That was an external tag, a marker. That was this sign of the covenant people. God had all kinds of other ceremonies and markers that he gave his people, right? In the Old Testament, you read these ceremonies they were supposed to go through, ways that they were supposed to dress, ways that they were supposed to interact with each other. And they were external markers that were supposed to show on the outside what was supposed to be true of the inside. But God again and again says, it disgusts me when you take my external markers, but you deny me in your heart. And so what we need to hear here in the text, which is very subtle, is that Paul is saying, you can be an alien, you can be outside of the people of God just by not being a part of the people of God, but you can also be born into the people of God and still be an alien. And so to translate that in modern language, many of you grew up in the church, and I would say, Our hope is in the church through Jesus Christ. But even if you're born in the church, you can be in that people of God and not know God. You can grow up in the church. You can grow up in the people of God by the flesh and not have a heart that's been transformed by what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross. 
And so it's very important that we all look back on the flesh. We all look back on our life of who am I according to what I've accomplished, according to how I was born, according to what I've done, according to my flesh, and recognize that's not enough. That's not enough. There's a lot of New Testament verses that talk about this need for a spiritual circumcision, for a heart circumcision. Um, I I have a tag here to kind of illustrate the concept. There's a tag marked sterile. If you work in a lab, you would sterilize things and then you would mark them so that you knew they were clean, right? Have y'all heard about the story recently about this outbreak of meningitis because people were, they had a a corrupted batch of, uh, I guess it was cortisone or some kind of steroid they were giving people shots with, right? They, They went and they looked in the lab. I just saw this on the news the other day. They looked in the lab and they found out it's pretty nasty, right? There was dirty stuff there in this place that was supposed to be sterile and it's hurting people. So again and again in the Old Testament, God says, you're, you're taking these tags, right? You're marking yourself. You're saying, I am God's people. I'm pure. I'm holy. Because of the covenant love of God, I've been made new. But you don't really believe it. You don't really trust Him. You think it's something about you. You think there's just something intrinsically better about you than other people, and that disgusts and repulses God. And, and Paul brings this out in the New Testament in his talk about circumcision. Just if, if you're taking notes, three uh, references I would throw down, I would write down are Philippians 3.3, 3, Galatians 5.6, and Romans 2.28. Three different uh, places, and there's a, many more in the New Testament, where Paul says external circumcision is not the thing. That's just an external sign. It's internal circumcision. Your heart needs to be circumcised. You need to know God in your heart. Romans 2.28 says it this way, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So when God creates a nation out of the Jewish people, and He calls Abraham to Himself, what does He tell Abraham? He says, All of the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. That's the goal. God was never a racist saying, I just like these people and everybody else forget about it. No, no, he said, despite these people's sin, I'm going to work through them. They're going to give birth to my son Jesus. I'm going to save the whole world through this people group. But all along the way, they were to be adopting other races in. You see that throughout the Old Testament. I don't want to take the time to look up all those references right now, but again and again, they were adopting outsiders into the covenant people of God. And so Paul in the New Testament says that's always how it worked. It was always about your heart disposition before God. And then the external markers were just part of God's marketing work of what he was doing to show who his people were and to show people's need for him. But God was the one that provided the salvation. It's by faith in him. It's by trusting in him. So when he tells us to remember who we were in the flesh, to remember that shame of being called these terrible names, to remember being an alien, And then he makes the aside. And oh yeah, by the way, the religious people, they're outside too. We're all outside in our flesh. We're all of the race of Adam. We all need to come in to the race of Christ. He helps us to see our our need for God. You got to start there. You got to recognize your need for God. That in the flesh, we haven't arrived yet. But through Christ, through the Spirit, He adopts us. He brings us into His people. I think kind of two ways to think about this is that if if you've grown up feeling like an outsider oftentimes you'll rebel you'll say well forget that i don't want god's standards or you'll make up your own set of standards right you'll say i i can find salvation i can find wholeness through this this chain through this tribe through this set of practices 
I think if we grow up feeling like insiders, we struggle with thinking that there's actually something right with us because of who we are. And either one, God wants you to know, no matter where you start, that there's not something right with you because of who you are. There's something right with you because of what Christ has accomplished for you. So you trust in him and what he's done for you on the cross, dying for your sins, giving you his perfect righteousness, because we didn't have a righteousness of our own. Whether we think we do or not, we don't have one, except by what Christ has accomplished. So that's where he starts to focus in on the work of the cross in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So those of you who knew you were far away, who knew you were outsiders, who knew the shame of being called these names, you know now you're brought near. You're brought into the family. You're adopted by the blood of Christ. Christ died for you. That's what he means when he says the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take our sins upon himself. And he says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So we find our humanity now, not in our flesh, but through the cross, through what he's accomplished, through his blood. And he says he tears down this dividing wall. He's our peace. What does the word peace mean? You know, um, in just kind of a simple war term, peace is no more fighting, right? So we're at war with God, and now we're not at war with God anymore, right? No more fighting. And we've talked a lot before also about the Jewish term for peace, shalom, has kind of a broader sense of, of, oh, everything is just, this is how it's supposed to be. Just goodness, right? Beautiful sunset. Holding hands with somebody you love. I, I like to talk about, you know, fajitas. If, if that doesn't work for you, think, you know, insert something else. But just that, yeah, God, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? And that's, that's shalom. It ha- it's that sense of wholeness and everything coming together. And he's saying, we get that in Christ, I don't get that by the color of my skin. I don't get that by the degrees that I have. I don't get that because of all the creative things I've done, rebelling against God, trying to find my own way. I get that through what Christ has accomplished for me, that peace, that this is the way things are supposed to be. And he says, specifically, he and his flesh took down the dividing wall of hostility. So there's this barrier, right? This barrier up that says, you're this kind of people and you're that kind of people, those barriers have been torn down in Christ. There's now one new man, one new humanity in Christ. I have a picture here of the old Berlin Wall marker. Uh, So we've gotten to go to Berlin to do work with Frank there, with camps. And as you walk through the city, there's streets now, there's buildings all over the place where the wall used to be. So if you didn't look down and look at the little bricks in the ground that mark where the wall used to be, you wouldn't know it was ever there. Because now people drive over where it used to be. They build buildings where it used to be. Life has moved on. That wall has been torn down. But they remember. They remember so they can uh, not go back to that again. And they can celebrate the goodness that's taken place because of the new openness now. And Paul says that that dividing wall, that, that wall that separated the races, that separated uh, people groups, has now been torn down. There's now one new humanity. The wall is gone. And he says the cross is what accomplishes this. It says the blood of Christ, what Christ has done. It's through Christ. It's through him. He's the one that accomplishes this. It's not us just learning to be nicer, right? But it's him and his goodness and kindness to us through the cross. So he says the wall has been torn down. And he goes on and he says, 
verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So it says he's actually abolished the law. He's abolished the commandments. So does that mean now, uh, whereas before God uh, didn't want you to kill people, now he's like, that's cool. Or before he didn't want you to take his name in vain, now he wants you to. Um, Before he didn't want you to lie, now he wants you to lie. Right? Adultery was bad before, but now adultery is good. Is that what that means? The abolishing of the law? No. Good answer. All right. For those of you that weren't sure, that's not what it means, okay? It, it means that as we stand before the law in the flesh, we come before the law, we all stand condemned. Whether you're religious or you're rebellious, we all stand condemned. And that condemnation has been torn down because Jesus fulfilled the perfect requirements of the law. Jesus fulfilled it for us. So because he fulfilled it for us, because he took the punishment of sin upon himself, and because he gave us his perfect righteousness, we can start living out the law. We can start uh, living rightly. But that condemnation before the law, you stand, I stand condemned, that, that voice has been set aside. Now, no longer are you condemned, no longer do you hear guilty, but now you hear forgiven, free, adopted, peace, right? There's now one new humanity, peace. He says in verse 16, And so he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So now there should no more be hostility between us and different kinds of people. Because before there was hostility, right? Because without the gospel, all I've got is what I can pull off in my flesh, right? So if I feel like you're more religious than me, then I have to say, you're so stupid and uptight and religious, right? So there's got to be some hostility there so I can justify myself. I follow my heart. I do my own thing. You religious people are stupid. Or, or turn it around. Maybe I'm really religious. Maybe I'm really holy. So I have to condemn you. And I have to say, you are so evil, but I am so good. So God loves me, Right? No matter where you are on the table, you have to have hostility towards the others because that justifies your existence. Because through the cross, that's been torn away. That's been taken down. That hostility is now gone. So now I stand before other people and I say, I'm, I'm just like you. We're now brothers and sisters because we're both sinners, but God forgave us. So now we have access to God through His work, not through my accomplishment. He says in verse, uh, at the end of 17, or the beginning of 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So again, Paul's applying it to everybody. Those of you who thought you were outsiders feel shame, peace. You're brought to God. Those of you who thought you were awesome, again, peace. God brings you in. It's not what you've done. It says in verse 18, so, uh, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And that's, again, a summary of everything we saw in chapter 1 and 2. Through the Spirit, the Spirit brings us in the work of Christ on the cross. We're now having access to the Father. We're adopted into His family. So instead of feeling like rebels now, we can feel like loved children. We're in His family. We belong to Him. And so now we have hope. Now we have hope. And as we look at the rest of the book, we'll see that that works itself out in, in morality, right? He's abolished the condemnation that we had before the law. And so now we actually fulfill the law. We actually love what is good because now we know we're loved by God. We start doing right things. But also this has application to how we see other people groups, right? One of the real applications is that it works itself out in how we relate to others. That as a people of of different races, that we would put first our faith in Christ. That that comes first. Race is secondary. God's creative God makes us different colors and different shapes. 
and that's celebrated. The diversity is celebrated and good and beautiful and just marks God's creativity. But primarily, we're children of God. Primarily, we're adopted by the Father into his family. And we need to recognize in our own culture how we've had, we've had issues getting along with other races, right? That's been part of our cultural history. Those of, those of us that are, that are my age, right, who were, who were born right after the uh, civil rights movement tend, tend to maybe think, oh, everything's fine, right? Because we grew up in a, in a mixed world where there wasn't so much of that segregation. But we have to recognize there's some, not so long ago, some serious issues that we had in our culture. And those issues are still around. One of the things that's helped me understand that is reading the works of Dr. Martin Luther King. Again, who, who died before I was born. Because I, I look back on something that just happened very, very shortly ago. Not, not very long ago, right? You recognize that there's, there's some real problems in our culture. Um, in, in his book, uh, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Martin Luther King explains why he was doing what he was doing, why it was important, and what he was trying to help other ministers to understand, white ministers, is he was trying to help them to understand the hurt and the pain uh, that existed, the injustice that was going on. He, He says this in the letter, you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six year old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television. And see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky. It's important that we understand that it's great to change social structures. It's, it's great to change just how we look at people and how we interact. But it all boils down to the heart. And if we don't see ourselves as adopted into the family of God by the work of Christ, we're not going to really be able to interact with anybody different in the right way. We're going to always go back to differences as something that justifies us rather than differences as just part of God's creativity, right? That that we're just different and it pleases God to use different people and do creative things, but that essentially we're sinners saved by God's grace. We're adopted into his family because he loves us. A great book that, that really helps us to get the heart of this is a book by John Piper called Bloodlines that I would highly recommend. Uh, the subtitle is Race, Cross, and the Christian. And uh, Piper does a great job of helping us to understand that it is the cross. The cross is what opens the door to us being able to love other people. It helps us to love other people that are different from us in just simple cultural ways, but it also helps us to love uh, people that are different than us in their faith, right? Right? We would say to people that don't know Christ, you need to know Christ, right? You're, you're hurting without him. But if you understand the gospel and you understand how you stand before God, there's not something special about you that helped you to trust in Christ, that you're just a sinner that's been adopted by God's grace, then that'll help you to love those who don't know Christ. It'll help you to relate to them in a gracious way. But it also, in a more cultural sense, when we're talking about uh, non-faith issues, just different cultures. It'll help us to just love anyone that's different than us. It'll help us to reach out to others. And I think because our culture is so divided on these things, I think it's important to recognize that there are kind of two big truths that both sides of the political debate get. They're both kind of right, and only in the gospel can we really pull it off. They're both kind of right. Like Conservatives like to say that, it, that we should just be colorblind and pay no attention, right? And in a sense, that's right, right? Because we should all be primarily reckoning our race as being in Christ. That should be primary. But nobody can be perfectly colorblind, right? 
And liberals like to talk about how much there still is a problem. And we need to agree with that too. We need to recognize, yeah, there are still problems. There are still problems. But, but what I would argue, what Piper argues in his book, and I think what Paul is arguing here in Ephesians 2, is that the only solution ultimately to racial fracturing is knowing that we stand adopted in Christ, that we are His, that He loves us. As we understand that He loves us, that will enable us to love other people, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, and not to keep justifying ourselves based on where we come from, what we look like, what we've accomplished, what we've done, but give God the glory, that we would boast in Christ and His accomplishment. The last thing I want us to, to think about is how humanity is rebuilt here. So because of this, because of all that the cross has accomplished, uh, we're being built into something really big. It says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. Um, this word gets overused a lot in our culture, but he's building us into something epic, right? I apologize for the cliche word, but it applies here. He's building something epic, this new humanity. He's building this huge, incredible thing that we get to be a part of. And again, we're not a part of it because of, because of our skin. We're not a part of it because of our resume, what we've done. We're a part of it because of Christ. We're a part of it because what he's accomplished, because of his great love for us, he's building us into this new humanity to transform the world and to give glory to him and how good and how great he is. I think sometimes when we think about buildings, uh, we think in our own context, or at least me growing up in Central Texas, I tend to think in uh, very temporary terms, right? There are no old buildings in Central Texas, right? Everything's kind of new. Um, you go to other places, you see big historic buildings, and it's impressive. And I think in a first century context, uh, that's more of what Paul was thinking of. I have a picture here of the foundation stones of the temple in Jerusalem. They're very big, right? Very big stones. It was something very huge, very epic. And so when Paul is talking about the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, and he's talking about us as the temple of God. He's calling to mind something glorious, right? One of the great wonders of the ancient world. He's calling to mind this picture of something huge and epic that inspires awe in people. And again, it's not because of how awesome we are. God makes us awesome. God wants to use us because of who He is, because of His grace. I think First Peter illustrates this well. Uh, Stephen Watson, our assistant pastor, preached on this several weeks ago. I think it was back in the summer, actually. And in 1 Peter, it says that as we come to Jesus and we see him as this living stone, that turns us into living stones being built into the temple. So he picks up the same language that Paul's uh, already using in Ephesians, and Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 2. It says, you come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. As you do this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, into a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through through Christ. So he's building us into something to be a priesthood for other people. He's building us up into something where we can intercede for others. That, that's his goal. He, he wants to use us to bless other peoples. He says in verse 9, you are a chosen race. Again, not based on your skin color, 
based on what Jesus has accomplished to you, for you. There's two races, right? In Adam or in Christ. And he says, in Christ, you're this chosen and special race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That overwhelming realization of God's grace to you is what propels us to live differently, to be that epic house where God dwells. We're different because of what he's done for us. And so the application is that we live in a new way. We live in a new way. Not only, as we saw before, do we love people that are different than us, and we have unity because we're all adopted into his family. We're all children of the same God by grace through faith. But we also begin to live morally. We, we throw away our old immoral habits of doing life on our own, making up our own rules, and we begin to align ourselves with the law of God. Peter says this again in the same section. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles in this world, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so I want to appeal to those of you that are still fooling around, that are still playing with the immorality of your past life, still trying to find pleasure and comfort in your flesh, that Peter warns and God warns that that actually wages war against your soul. When you live in a morality that's different than the one that God outlines for you, it hurts you. It's not just some kind of arbitrary thing where God says, I like this and I don't like that, and he's just, he's just trying to crush your fun and your joy. No, he, he wants your joy more than you do. And as you understand God's grace, that'll change you so that you want to actually live your life in line with what he says is right. It'll start to make sense. You'll, you'll start to think, I want to do what God says because God loves me. Whereas before, you distrusted him. You didn't think what he wanted was for your best. And that's the change. That's what changes us from being in the race of Adam and Eve who said, we don't trust God, we're going to do it our own way. And in the race of Christ, we say, I see that he's given himself for me, so of course I trust him and I want to do things the way he tells me to do them. So abstain from those passions that wage war against your soul. And he says, keep your conduct among the nations honorable. So when they speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They're saying, as you actually live in this new way, it's going to glorify God. People are going to praise God. More people will see how good he is. We will be that priesthood. We will be that temple that shows people who God is. He'll dwell in us, through us as the church. Not just this church, but the worldwide church of every tongue and tribe and nation and race of men. I just want to wrap up real quick talking about a, a, uh, just an interesting debate that was happening through some blogs last month. There was a Christian uh, rap artist named Propaganda uh, that wrote a song called Precious Puritans. And so there's some debate back and forth about this song because in the song he talks about how difficult it is for him as a black man to hear uh, his pastor quote the Puritans and not think twice about the fact that many of these Puritans he's quoting uh, thought that whites were superior to blacks or owned slaves. And he talks about how difficult that is for him as a black man and how he wishes his uh, white brothers and sisters understood that in the church. But what's interesting is in an interview about the song, Propaganda says that that wasn't really the main point. That was a secondary point, right? We, we need to understand how that affects us. If we're going to really love each other in, in different cultures, we need to listen. We need to understand each other. But he says the main point was the end of the song where he says that people do the same thing to us. People do the same thing to him 
as a singer. Whenever we quote anyone, whenever we think that anyone is flawless and always says the right thing, says we're making an idol out of that person. He says, you know what? The same thing happens to me. Propaganda says when people quote me, they don't really understand that I'm a sinner. And his conclusion is that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses all of us. No matter how messed up we are, He wants to use us by His grace to do good things. And he says that that was his ultimate point. He's a reader of the Puritans. He enjoys what they have to say. But he wants wants his brothers and sisters to understand the pain and and the racial uh, disharmony that's happened in our culture. But ultimately, he wants us to understand that all of us are sinners before God. And all of us need God's grace. And I think that's the main idea that Paul is talking about as well. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that you've saved us by grace. We thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus. Help us uh, to display what you've done in our lives. That there would be real reconciliation in this church, in the universal church. That there would also be a real morality. That we would uh, love to live out what you've told us to do, not because we think we're somehow engendering your favor, but because we now trust you and we know that you're good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I'd love to answer any questions you have or or meet you if I haven't met you yet. I'll be up front. Thank you very much.